0: A startled corpse, a blue-eyed woman, and a cryptic message scrawled by a dying man, with the pieces of a Chinese puzzle that wouldn't fit together, until I found out what was deadly about the
1: orange dog. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character, as CBS presents the adventures of Philip Marlowe. And now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Orange Dog.
0: By six in the evening of a very slow day, I'd resigned myself to the business of no business, so I took my feet down from my desk switched off the lights and started out the door for home with the prospect of a nice quiet evening ahead of me but i didn't make it even as far as the door oh hello philip marlowe
2: Marlo, my name is shelly martin i'm at 8412 los Feliz, a private residence i want you to come out here right away my sister is in a jam a nasty one
0: well miss martin as a matter of fact i was just closing up for the night look and I was...
2: you I need the services of a private detective right now this minute, and I'm prepared to pay for them. There are plenty of others in town. Are you coming or not?
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah, okay, and thanks for the reminder. That's me you hear sprinting up your front walk.
2: That's much better. And Marlowe, bring your brains along. You're gonna need them.
0: And that was the end of my quiet evening. But I just couldn't resist those government engravings of Mr. Lincoln. So I drove down to Weston, turned off on Los Feliz, and found the number 8412. The yard was an overgrown tangle of perennial plants losing their battle with the weeds. It was like a girl in a strapless evening gown with her hair up in curlers. However, I could see a light through the Venetian blinds, and the doorbell worked, with a resonant two-tone chime that caused the door to open just far enough to... Allow a pair of eyes so blue, they were almost purple to peek out at me.
2: Yes, what is it?
0: uh, I'm delivering that private detective you ordered.
2: Oh, Marlowe. Come in. Thanks. Sit down, won't you?
0: Thanks again. All right, what's the next move?
2: It's about my kid sister. Mm -hmm. She's involved with a man named Lou Horner, a San Francisco broker. She's quite deeply involved, I'm afraid. Oh? You see... Some very strange things are going on, Marlowe, and my sister is a naive kid caught right in the middle of them.
0: Yeah, I see. What sort of strange things, Miss Martin? Shelley. Sweet.
2: Well, to begin with, when I arrived from San Francisco today, my sister called me and asked me to meet her here in this house. When I got here, the lights were on, the radio was playing, and the front door was open. But the place was deserted.
0: Whose house is it? Horner's?
2: No, I think she said it belongs to a friend of his who's in Europe now. This Horner person uses it when he's in Los Angeles.
0: Well, couldn't they have stepped out for a while?
2: Mm-mm.
0: You know, you don't look the type, Shelley. but maybe you're just panicky, huh?
2: No, I'm not being panicky.
0: All right, all right. Where's the nasty jam?
2: Right behind the couch. Take a look.
0: Okay. But, you know, I... Oh, I see what you mean. Who is he, Shelley? How'd he get here?
2: Maybe it's Horner. I don't know. I uh, tried to search him, but I couldn't.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it wouldn't have helped anyway. Whoever shot him cleaned him out. No wallet, no papers, nothing.
2: I found this magazine lying under his hand. Look here.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: He must have written this just before he died. Where's that? Here.
0: Oh. oh. It says, call Marion tonight about the orange dog of foe. Orange dog a foe. For what?
2: That's why I called you, Phil. Marion is my sister. And whatever the orange dog of foe is, it must be awfully important. We've got to find out what it means, Phil, for Marion's sake.
0: So far, it means murder, honey, and that's for the cops. No, I...
2: Well, all right, call them. But keep Marion's name out of it. A thing like this could destroy her.
0: But look, maybe she pulled the trigger on our friend here.
2: Maybe, you know? but I don't think so. She's a sweet kid, Phil. Give her a break. If I'm wrong, I swear I'll help you bring her in myself. Is that fair
0: enough? Okay, Shelley, it's a deal. It makes just as much sense as the orange dog of Fole, but no more. <laughs> So I checked as far as I could on my client and sent her home, which was to the Villa 12 at the Wilshire Gardens Hotel. I ripped the General Squeegee tire ad with a message scribbled across it out of the magazine, folded it up, and stuck it in my pocket. Next, I called Lieutenant E. Barrett, homicide, and told him where I'd found a body, probably named Lou Horner, leaving out all the details about Shelley, Marion, and the orange dog. Then I started out the door, but got back as a shadow slid across the walk. I caught a glimpse of a large, ugly head of long, dirty hair... ...set on a small, ugly body that was moving fast. By the time I got out on the walk, long hair was already putting mileage... ...on a green coupe with a broken taillight. It winked mockingly as it went out of sight. So I got in my car and headed for New Chinatown. It was the logical place to get some information regarding a Chinese dog. I saw a light filtering through a dingy window... Illuminating the words, James Tang, dealer in Oriental Curios. Inside the musty shop, a little man, dressed in a black kimono, drifted forward softly. Yes? I, uh, uh, think perhaps you can help
3: me, huh? I am honored. To be able to help would bring fragrance of plum blossoms to my nostrils, carpet of rose petals to my humble floor, and thousand blessings upon my head.
0: Oh, it's very pretty. Tell me, what is the dog of foe? The,
3: the dog of foe? Why, why this? This fantastic creature here is called the dog of foe. His fierce eyes and snarling mouth are to frighten away evil spirits from temples of
0: Buddha. Why do you say called the dog of foe?
3: Amateur collectors and auctioneers have named him that. It sounds exotic to cash Surely he is a lion, the Lion of Korea.
0: I see. Tang, would you happen to have an orange dog or foe?
3: Very strange that you should ask that, my friend.
0: Strange? Why?
3: Reason number one, there is no authentic orange dog or foe.
0: That's a good reason. Why not?
3: Because to Buddhists, orange is color of sorrow. The piece you speak of could not possibly be authentic.
0: What's reason number two?
3: You are second person to inquire after this non-existent orange dog of foe within last few minutes.
0: Was it an ugly little man with long hair?
3: Quite contrary. It was very pretty girl with short hair.
0: Was her name Marion?
3: She made point of not leaving her name.
0: Well, it proves something.
3: However, my friend, old Chinese proverb, loosely translated, says a little knowledge the instrument of a
0: fool. There were nine other curio shops in the neighborhood, so I started making the rounds for the non-existent orange dog of foe and a girl who was interested in one. From the first three shops, I got a fast, horse laugh and the fact that the girl was still ahead of me. The next two netted an insult piece and a total blank on the dame. And from the 6th call, Saxon's, a glossy, well-ordered place on West 7th Street. The only effect was a coldly curious raised eyebrow. The man in front of me whom I took to be Mr. Saxon himself was a gaunt white Russian with a high naked head the color of warm paraffin. His slender fingers played nervously with each other as we talked.
4: The orange dog of four. Yes, I have heard of such a piece, I think. It would be porcelain. Probably. This is your business. Who has it, Mr. Saxon? Can you tell me? No, no, I'm sorry. I believe I heard this orange dog mentioned just once somewhere down in the village. But I'm sure I could never remember who spoke of it or when.
0: Oh, no idea of its value then,
4: huh? Now that you mention it, I seem to remember the figure 20,000.
0: You mean yen. How much in American money?
4: I am speaking of American money. It would be an importation from China, you know. How
0: could it be worth that
4: much? It's not even authentic, Mr. Saxon. Authentic? You seem to know a good deal more than I about this orange dog. Possibly one would have to see it to appreciate its value.
0: Yeah. Tell me, has a girl been in here
4: tonight looking for this orange dog? A girl? I know. Know anybody named Marion? Marion. Marion. No, there is no one in my acquaintance by that name. But why do you ask? Because
0: Marion has quite an interest in the orange dog. I have a feeling they'd make a great team if we could get them together.
4: I see. And what is your name, sir? It's
0: not Fu Manchu, Mr. Saxon. Good night. (laughs) Good night. Saxon's expression didn't change. I turned and walked out of the place, and then because with both of us using double talk, the conversation was bound to deteriorate. At least I had found out that the orange dog of foe existed and was going for a very high figure, especially for a phony. And it didn't take an abacus to figure out that Saxon knew more than he told me. Well, I started up the sidewalk for the next bric-a-brac emporium when I saw something parked on the side street which brought me to a halt. It was that green coop with the broken taillight. I went over to it, found it empty, and stuck my head inside to check the registration card for Longhair's real name. Yeah, it was a very foolish move because Longhair at that very moment prodded my kidney with a muzzle of a 38. And neither he nor the gun had a sense of humor.
5: All right, Mr. Wise Guy, come on, walk. You and me are gone up the alley here. What's the matter? Don't you feel at home in the light? Shut up. I don't like him much anyway, so you better ease off with the smart
0: science. Yeah, okay, this will go us far enough.
5: Well, Mr. Guy, did you find what you're looking for?
0: You mean the orange dog, shorty? The answer's no. The orange dog. So that's where the plates are. What plates? You're working for Horner. You don't know what plates. Look, chum, when you get your next haircut, have your brains dusted off. Nobody works for Horner anymore. Horner's dead. Dead? Since when? What's the surprise act for? You saw the body. You were sneaking around that house on Los Feliz. In fact, you might have killed Horner yourself. That body
5: wasn't Horner. Why, Horner's three times the size of that guy on Los Feliz. He's bald. Also, he's so dumb he can't remember his own phone number. Oh, Holy.
4: I'm looking for O'Var mm. Street where they fell those injured. I'm sorry, gentlemen. I don't want to hey, quiet. I'll blow your brains
5: out. All right, now come on, Mr. Wise Guy. Tell me what Horner's got on his mind. You know all right.
0: I saw you taking orders from his girl. You mean Shelley Martin? Who else? Thought maybe you meant Marion. Marion? Who's Marion? Shelley Martin's sister, and don't let her worry you. Marion's got the orange dog eating out of her hand. I don't say
5: it ain't funny, Mister. It's just peculiar, because Shelley Martin don't have a sister, I know. So it seems like you're a very mixed up character. In fact, Mister Wise Guy, you're so mixed up, you're no good to me at all. So get over there with the rest of that. Oh! <laughs>
0: My time getting up. The dirty, long haired little man was gone, and my headache from the rap he'd given me with a pistol barrel. And I was disgusted with myself. Dry, dirty, disgusted like a drunk at sunrise because a nasty little jerk with an oversized head and a blue eyed dynamo with auburn hair had me jumping through hoops like a trained ape. I stood in the alley and swore at myself until the futility of that routine dawned on me. Then I decided to go hunting. I made one stop first at a telephone to at least get Ibarra off my conscience. Lieutenant Ibarra. Hello, Lieutenant. I just found out that body on Los Feliz isn't Horner.
1: I knew that an hour ago. Huh? The body isn't Horner, isn't Horner, is no broke. He's a counterfeiter, a big one. No. The dead man was a treasury agent named Slade who was closing in on Horner. So if you've got anything you haven't
0: told, Phil, you better get it off your chest. At this point, it's a pleasure. A girl named Shelley Martin's calling the signals about now, and she can be found at Villa 12, Wilshire Gardens Hotel. Mm. Yeah, hurry, you'll just about meet me there, Ibarra.
1: Now, wait. Suppose you go alone and find out what you can first.
0: That's a switch.
1: I'll follow in half an hour. Let's not freeze her up, Marlowe. Let's keep her talking,
0: okay? Okay, Ibarra, that's easy for her. She's got a forked tongue. Only this time it's going to wag strictly on the straight and narrow, I guarantee it.
1: In just a moment, we will return to the second act of the adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, it's no mystery that hunger and cold confront many families abroad this winter. CARE will help feed and clothe these needy people. CARE, the safe, sure, non-profit way to send supplies to Europe and Asia. A check to CARE for $10 will send a 21.5-pound, 41,000-calorie food package, or a baby food package, or a layette, or a baby blanket package, or material for clothing. Care guarantees delivery. You get a signed receipt that your package has reached its destination. Write your check tonight. Mail it first thing in the morning to CARE, C A R E, 50 Broad Street, New York City. And now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story The Orange Dog.
0: my car toward the Wilshire Gardens and a beautiful liar named Shelley Martin, I was sure of two things. The plates that Hair had wisecracked about just before he piled me into a row of garbage cans were the engraved kind that counterfeiters use to make money the easy way. And second, both Longhair and Lou Horner were racing for the plates as well as the orange dog, which could be one and the same thing. But 20 minutes later as I pulled up near Villa 12, which was strips of yellow light, and raised voices drifting out of half-open Venetian blinds. I forgot about the gentleman involved and concentrated on a lady who didn't have a sister called Marion. I went around to the back of the villa where I found the service door unlocked and the kitchen beyond dark. And when I entered and quietly moved to a spot near the living room where I could see Shelley snapping at a pompous, excitable man with a red face, All
2: right, I so figured I'm that a little eavesdropping might pay I off. Belong. I'm here in Los Angeles. Is there anything wrong with that, Mr. Horner?
1: Yes, everything. Why, I wouldn't even have known you were in town if I hadn't gone back to the place in Los Feliz where I saw you and some man having a delightful little chit-chat over the body of that tea man. man. Yes.
2: Is that who he was?
1: A meddlesome fool I caught snooping through my papers.
2: Then, then you killed him, Lou.
1: Of course I killed him. I had to. Now stop asking questions and get out of here. Because this is business, not pleasure, Shelley. And that leaves no room for you.
2: Or Marion. Ma-
3: what do you know about Marion?
2: Not enough. But what I do know, I don't like. Look, Lou, who is Marion and what does she mean to you?
1: Marion means money to me, Shelley. Nothing more. So just leave me alone here so that I can make a call according to schedule.
2: What a call about... Lou. What's the matter, Shelley? Behind you, Lou. They're in the garden. Lou!
0: (laughs) The bullet crashed through a closed window, didn't stop until it got the Horner who grabbed at his chest and dropped to the floor even before the glass quit flying. And by the time I got outside to where the shot had come from... I found nothing but a little wind rustling a lot of trees. and I got back to Shelley and the blood of a tweet on the carpet, Horner was already dead.
2: Marlowe. follow. the man out there was Henry Peel.
0: Peel? Something in long hair and dirty clothes? Yes,
2: I met him in Horner's office once. Lou said he was a broker from Chicago.
0: Come on, both Peel and Horner are counterfeiters.
2: What? Lou, a counterfeiter?
0: That's right. Never mind the carefully arched eyebrows, honey. They mean nothing.
2: But, Marlowe, I swear I never knew that Horner was anything but a broker.
0: A broker maltreating poor sister Marion? You're a liar, Shelley.
2: About Marion, yes. I haven't even got a sister. But from there on out, I'm telling the truth, Phil.
0: Then tell some more and fast.
2: All right, here it is. Lou Horner's been my
0: boyfriend. And, uh, checkbook?
2: For the past year and a half. But about a month ago, he suddenly stopped being very attentive. And I couldn't figure out why.
0: So you decided to keep your big blue eyes wide open, huh?
2: Exactly. And it paid off. Because I found out that... One, he had taken better than $20,000 out of his bank account. Two, that he was coming down here to Los Angeles.
0: And three, that an item named Marion might be beating your time.
2: Yes. And that part of it upset me plenty. Until ten minutes ago. But then I found out that Horner here was a murderer. And that, Marlowe, I don't buy.
0: Three cheers for the all-American girl.
2: Oh, skip it, Marlow. I'll live my way. You live yours.
0: Don't worry, honey. Nobody wants to change places with you. Hey. Hey, look. Why does Horner wear a little rubber band on his little finger, do you know?
2: Oh, he had a bad memory. He used every kind of gadget in the books to keep himself from forgetting things, especially numbers. Oh, yeah. well, for example, that rubber band might mean, oh, ten o'clock. How do you figure? Like five and five. The fingers on each hand, reading from left to right. He used things like that.
0: Oh. Wait a minute. Hmm? Horner was going to make a call to Marion just now, and the message the T-man left was... Call Marion
2: tonight about... about
0: the orange dog fool. Shelly, baby, where's your phone? Fast. Come on, it's quarter after ten already.
2: What's well, it's out there in the hall, Marlon. Oh. What are you talking about?
0: A line, honey, a line on your ex-sister, Marion. This is Mr. Saxon. Oh. Uh, Lou Horner, Mr. Saxon. I, I know I'm some 15 minutes late with this call, but I'd still like to see you about the orange dog of foe.
4: Certainly, Mr. Horner. The orange dog is here waiting
0: for you. Good. I'll be right over.
2: Marlowe, who is Mr. Saxon? A
0: man very close to a lot of trouble, Shelley. Now, look, you wait right here for the law, and in particular, one lieutenant Ibarra. Tell him nothing but the truth about Horner and what he meant to you in dollars and cents, and you may be all right.
2: But where are you going, Marlowe?
0: To a curio shop on West 7th Street to see, among other things, the orange dog of foe.
4: the Mr. Horner who
0: called? Yeah, yeah. Also the one who was here this afternoon, you remember? Oh,
4: yeah.
0: yeah well, I, I'm i sorry I didn't call you at 10, Mr. Saxon, according to schedule. I hope it hasn't inconvenienced you. No,
4: that's quite all right, Mr. Horner. One moment, sir. Right. What's
0: the matter? Is anything wrong tonight? You seem on edge, Mr. Saxon.
4: I am. So please, Mr. Horner, don't make a single stupid move. What?
0: Wait a minute. Why the gun, Mr. Saxon? I promise not to bite the orange dog. You
4: won't even touch the orange dog. Now, who are you?
0: We've been all through that. I'm Horner Saxon, Lou Horner of San Francisco. No,
4: you're not. Horner would have had no reason to wander around curio shops as you did this afternoon, asking any and everybody about the orange dog. Now, once more, who are you, and where is the real Lou Horner?
0: All right, we'll take him in that order. I'm a private detective named Philip Marlowe, and Lou Horner's a corpse. Hmm. But also, I'm a good friend of yours, Saxon, because... Going to give you a little bit of advice for free. Call it quits, buster. You're licked. What are you talking about, Marlow? A for treasury man named Slade. Before mm. he died, Saxony he talked. I see. And believe me, he said enough to put you away till orange dogs are as popular as lifesavers. And what do you say, Saxon? Do
4: we play it smart? Very well, Marlowe. We will play it smart. My kind of smart. Now, turn around and walk through that curtain there. I want to show you something.
0: Orange dog, maybe?
4: Yes. The orange dog of foes. I want you to see it for yourself, before you die. Saxon said
0: die like it already happened. And After he relieved me of the comforting bulge of the gun in my pocket and marched me to a large, windowless room that was a little darker than the lining of an eight ball, he told me to stand very still. Then he turned on a single lamp that rested on a large, scarred table, and next to it, an ordinary shipping crate and cushioned on all sides by white wrapping paper. I finally saw the orange dog of foe. It was a porcelain lion, popeye majestic in a crazy way. And also it was colored orange, bright and clear. But now that I'd seen it, I knew that the next move was Saxon's. And I turned to face him. It was then that I noticed the black curtain behind him move slightly. And Longhair quietly stepped into the room. This, Mr. Saxon did not know about.
4: Well, Marlowe, now that you have seen the orange dog for your first and last time, what do you think of it?
5: He thinks it's just jet-dandy, gin- mister. What? Now drop your gun before I
0: blow the top of your head off. Go on, drop it. Hmm. Yeah, it's better. Now sit down there and stay put.
5: And you Marlow, Marlowe get across the room.
0: Okay. Thanks for showing up, Peel, before Saxon here ran out of small jokes.
5: Don't kid yourself, Marlowe. I didn't just show up. I've been right behind you all the way. That's how I work.
0: So what do you want, Peel?
5: A couple of very fine engraved plates that I've been after for six months now.
0: Plates which could be in the Orange Dog of foe? No place else
5: but. Or do you think that maybe the late Mr. Horner wanted as an ornament?
4: But that's all it is. There are no plates in the Orange Dog. It is only a collector's item. And you're a liar, Saxon. And I know the
5: best way to prove that. Marlow, pick that thing up and toss it against the wall. No, no,
4: don't. I tell you, there's nothing in it. Toss it, Marlowe. Go on. Okay, Peel. Ah.
5: I will see who's right up about the plates being here.
0: Nothing, huh, Peel? Nah. Nothing.
5: All right, Saxon, get up. I want to know what a plates are, so I'm going to count to three. That's how long you have to live, if you don't
0: tell me. No, no. Peel,
4: believe me, there are no plates.
0: One. Two. Hold it, Peel. Wait. Here are the plates here, in this jewel box. Look, I...
4: right here, under your... No! <laughs> Is
0: he... is he out, Marlowe? Yeah, he's out, all right. He took a light with him, too. Is there...
4: is there another lamp in here? No, no, there isn't. Nor is there another gun. Why, you stinking little... Wait a minute, those siren sacks, and they're heading this way.
0: Police? Yeah, the Police. Looks like sooner or later, everybody gets together in the back room at Saxon's, But huh? not
4: everybody stays here. So I'll take this wrapping paper and leave now. Wrapping paper? The stuff that
0: was around the orange
4: dog? Yes, a sample of the best grade of counterfeiting paper made, Marlowe. And that's what Warner was supposed to buy, not plates. Those he got a month ago.
0: Still makes you a crook, Saxon, and one who'll never get past the front door.
4: Oh, no, we'll see about that. Marlowe!
0: Keep shooting, Saxon, in the dark. You got four shots left. You filthy man! Only one now, Saxon. That's number six. You're through, Saxon. By the time he and his boys, plus a half a dozen very anxious team men got into the room, Saxon was already coming apart at the seams. After a half hour of steady questioning, he split wide open and led us all to a basement hideout where the team men went wild... over a few thousand sheets of A-1 counterfeiting paper. But an hour later, after Peel, who admitted murdering Lou Horner... and Saxon, who was ready for the nearest straitjacket, were both in a lockup... there was still the problem of the glib lass from San Francisco. But finally, when Shelley, Lieutenant Ibarra, and I... stood at the green light of the globe in front of the police headquarters... I knew that the girl who technically was only guilty of withholding information from the police was not going to spend any time in the pokey... because, after all, I was more or less guilty of the same thing. Besides, Lieutenant Ibarra was still interested in the others.
1: Well, Marlowe, it looks like the whole business actually boils down... to a single transaction between Clay Saxon, who had the counterfeiting paper... and Lou Horner, who was supposed to buy it.
0: That's right, Ibarra. But Horner, who must have made his contact with Saxon... via some middleman in San Francisco... Only had a telephone number and the password, the orange dog of foe to work on here in L.A.
1: But how'd you get hold of that number, Phil?
0: From the message the T man left before he died.
2: You mean you actually called someone named Marion?
0: No, honey. I just dialed Marion. Hmm? M-A, Madison. R-I-O-N, 7466. Madison, 7466. You get it? Yeah. <laughs>
2: Another one of Horner's screwy memory tricks, like the rubber band on his tenth finger.
0: Hey, that's pretty good, Phil. Oh, it's an old gimmick, really. I read it in a dozen detective stories. What do you know? Maybe I ought to read some of those. <laughs> well,
1: good night, Philip. Look for you tomorrow. Good night,
0: Lieutenant. Well, Shelley, do I, uh, do I show you the way home?
2: Now, Marla, aren't you hungry or thirsty or
0: something? Yeah, yeah, I uh, guess I am at that.
2: Well, I know just the place for us, darling. Oh? It's a cute little place right smack in the middle of Chinatown.
0: Well, we got through a small Chinese dinner without seeing or hearing from a single orange dog. And when it came time to leave, I was thinking that Shelley wasn't really too bad a kid at that. So when she left the table to powder her nose, I started to make plans. But when she got back, I forgot about them because in the meantime, she'd run into an old friend. Yeah, a rich old friend who was all alone in the big city. I said I didn't mind taking a rain check when she explained that he was from Kansas City and a broker at that. He certainly was was overweight. Too much steak and potatoes. Mmm. Steak and potatoes. Wonder if Lindy's is still open.
1: Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Francis Robinson, Edgar Barrier, Tony Barrett, Lou Krugman, and Ed Begley. Lieutenant Detective Abar is played by Jeff Corey. The special music was by Richard Oran. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says...
0: I was hired to find a blackmailer, and I did. But first I found a badly beaten Adonis, a Jezebel with an accent, and a man who had been an easy mark for murder.
1: 90 Minutes of Unsurpassed Comedy comes to you every Sunday night when CBS brings you The Spike Jones Show, The Jack Benny Show, and Amos and Andy in succession. Tomorrow night, pianist Alec Templeton and songstress Peggy Mann are Spike Jones special guests. Jack Benny and his gang, and Amos and Andy following in succession, will bring you more of the laughs that make them first for Sunday night fun. Spike Jones and Amos and Andy come to you over most of these same CBS network stations, and Jack Benny comes to you over them all. Now stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: I was hired to find a blackmailer, and I did. But first I found a badly beaten Adonis, a Jezebel with an accent, and a man who had been an easy mark for murder.
1: From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Easy Mark.
0: I'd spent a dull day on a duller subject, which was don't get caught with your income tax return down at midnight, March 15th. After calling time for a thick stake designated to bolster the stamina of a private detective, but nevertheless non deductible, I reluctantly headed back to my office where I found both my conscience and the long form 1040 still waiting, which meant there was no way out. The dull day was going to stretch on into the night, but then I got a break because my telephone rang and the call was from one Mrs. Corey Gilbert, a prospective client who wanted action in a hurry.
6: Marlo? You've got to move fast. I just found out that my husband, Ross, will be at 3806 Melrose Avenue in 20 minutes, and I know that means
0: trouble. Well, just for size, Mrs. Gilbert, how do you spell trouble? With a capital B, as in blackmail.
6: There's no time for details now. Just get to that address and find out who Ross is meeting with. Only hurry, Marlowe, please. Well, hurry after what,
0: Mrs. Gilbert? I've never met your husband, remember?
6: Oh, oh, yes. Well, he's tall, dark eyes, dark hair, very handsome.
0: And the blackmailer, short, stocky, and repulsive, I suppose.
6: I've never seen the blackmailer.
0: All right, Mrs. Gilbert, where can I reach you?
6: Well, I live at 439 and a half Ogden, Drive. Ogden Drive. The phone number is Gladstone 8195.
0: 8195. All right, Mrs. Gilbert, I'll call you.
6: Thanks. Oh, and Marlo. Yeah? Hurry, will you? You see, I... I love my husband.
0: I was a little more than 20 minutes finding the address on Melrose. But when I finally pulled up and parked away from the place, I figured being late didn't matter because number 3806 turned out to be an unfinished house set deep in an acre of building materials. I was about to head for a telephone and get an explanation from a confused lady named Corey Gilbert when a lot of noise from what would someday be a living room changed my mind. Then I knew that my client had the right address after all, because there in the pale light of a slice of moon, taking the last of an awful beating from a thin man with a thick beard and a lot of muscle was Ross Gilbert. Dark eyes and dark hair, like she said, but no longer very handsome.
1: Don't. Don't hit me again. Stop worrying, Gilbert. I'm almost through with you except for this. A present from Nanette. And just one more from Nanette.
0: That last punch stacked Ross Gilbert onto a pile of rough lumber like he was another one by twelve as he slowly scraped to the floor unconscious Thickbeard dusted himself off lightly jerked at his tie and stepped out of the opening reserve for a future front door I started over to help Ross Gilbert but then I remembered that my client wanted to know who her husband was meeting and why not how hard or fast he could swing so I decided for the time being to play it quiet when Thickbeard got into his car I got into mine <laughs> I followed him all the way to Beverly Hills, where he pulled to a stop in front of the Camden Arms Court. I parked lights out and watched him strut up a flagstone walk and knock on the door of a bungalow number four, which was dark. When he knocked again and it stayed dark, he took an envelope out of his pocket, wrote something on it, and jammed it into the mailbox. Then he got back into his car and started away fast. I walked up to the bungalow and helped myself to Thickbeard's empty envelope. On one side, scrawled in pencil and smudge, was the telephone number Sunset 31676. On the other, payment delivered okay, plumber. Plumber, huh? I shoved the message into my pocket, struck a match, and started looking for a name on the front door. But then a cab pulled up, and a moment later, I had help.
7: I can be of some assistance, Barrette?
0: Yes, I, I was just... Oh. Uh. <laughs> Nanette?
7: Oui. Nanette Lamarck. But I do not know you, monsieur.
0: No. No, you don't,
7: I, um, I think if you will stop staring and begin talking, we will do much better. Who are you?
0: A Philip Marlowe, a friend of Plummer's. He asked me to deliver a message for him. Do I go on?
7: Of course, Mr. Marlowe. But please come inside. It is so much nicer there.
0: <laughs> Nanette was so right about it being nicer inside. There were lights. And that made it easier to see that the lady with the thick French accent and the gorgeous waistline... was something that could have mustered her own foreign legion. She was narrow green eyes and open red lips... topped by a lot of close-cropped soft brown curls that kept running into each other. And for a dress she was wearing about a quarter of a mile of draped chiffon... that in the right places fitted a little closer than her own skin... When I told her what I claimed had been a message from Plummer himself, she purred her thanks and started to mix me a drink. When I brought up the subject of blackmail, she stopped abruptly, spilling a bottle of perfectly good Kentucky tavern all over the table.
7: Blackmail? What do you mean, Mallow?
0: Extortion, honey. The malpractice of getting a lot for knowing a little that's not nice.
7: <laughs> You're swinging wild now, mon cher.
0: Maybe. But if it doesn't bother you, I'll stay right with it. Because I'd like to know why you and Plummer, who have such an easy mark, insist on throwing rocks.
7: What easy mark are you talking about?
0: A tall, dark, and used to be a handsome guy named Ross Gilbert.
7: Ross? Soda, Marlowe?
0: Yeah. But don't make it too sweet, honey. I can't take it that way.
7: Nanette will be very careful not to make it too sweet. There. Tell me, mon cher, when did you last see Plummer? Uh, before tonight, I mean.
0: Uh, I'm not sure. I think it was at the fights over at the Legion Stadium last week. Now do I get my drink?
7: Oui, mon cher. You will get your drink in your face! <coughs> liar!
0: <clears throat> oh, tell me, Frenchie, is that Pearl Handle 32 considered the very latest along the Champs-Élysées?
7: You have lied to me, mon ami. <clears throat> you see, Plummer only arrived in Los Angeles the day before yesterday. For the first time in his life.
0: All right, I made a mistake about seeing Plummer at the fights last week. Now, why don't you put away the gun and we'll talk about Ross Gilbert.
7: Ross oh, Gilbert is a man I hate with all my heart. A man I could kill right this minute. And that, Mallow goes for anyone connected with him. So now get out.
0: Oh, without well, even so much as an au revoir.
7: I reserve au revoir for my friends, Mallow. Good night. <laughs>
0: Marlowe, Mrs. Gilbert, is Ross all right?
6: Ross isn't here, Marlowe. What happened
0: to him? He ran into an ugly beating at that address on Melrose. Something nasty from out of town named Plummer is responsible. Ever hear of him andor an imported Jezebel called Nanette Lamarck?
6: No, I haven't. But what about Ross? What's wrong with him?
0: Nothing that a pound of beefsteak and enough liniment can't cure. But before we worry about Ross, Mrs. Gilbert, one more thing. It's a phone number I found on the back of an envelope that belonged to Plummer. Number is sunset 31676. What? Somebody you know?
6: Yes, someone I know very well. It's the telephone number of my ex husband, Emery Marsh.
0: Emery Marsh, huh? Fancy dress designer on Wilshire?
6: That's right. But what's he got to do with all this? Emery only met Ross once in Mexico, a party at Ensenada.
0: Yeah, well, look, Mrs. Gilbert, why don't we postpone collecting Ross until I find out a little more? Where does your uh, ex husband Marsh live?
6: In Santa Monica. But there's a good chance that he's still at his place on Wilshire. He does most of his work at night.
0: Well, then Wilshire Boulevard's my next stop. I'll try to make it a quick one. Goodbye. (laughs) Emery Marsh's place on Wilshire was an expensive shop with a single velvet-lined show window that was home for a beautiful mannequin wearing an evening gown that would drop at the first sneeze. And after I spent five minutes thumping on a plush leather-upholstered portal a light finally clicked on someplace inside. And a moment later, Emery Marsh opened the door. He was tall, 45, sandy-haired, and looked less like a dress designer than I did. So after following his tweet back into an inner sanctum that was combed plywood behind Chinese modern furniture, I decided to play it almost straight.
8: Now, Mr. Marlowe, what can I do for you?
0: Well, it's a little too early to tell. I'm a private detective, Mr. Marsh, and I'm working for your ex-wife, Corey Gilbert. Corey. Mm
8: Mm-hmm. Is she in trouble, Mr. Marlowe?
0: No, no, close to it. Tell me, Mr. Marsh, when you were last over to Nanette Lamarck's place at Camden Arms, when was that?
8: Nanette Lamarck? Yeah. I've never heard of her.
0: Nor a man named Plummer?
8: Nor a man named Plummer. Who are they?
0: Well, in the order I tossed them out, a mademoiselle with a touchy temper and a thug who needs a shave.
8: I don't understand. How do they concern me? Well, maybe they don't.
0: But your telephone number turned up on Plummer. Both Plummer and Nanette are tied on to a man who at this moment is probably... Picking himself up off the floor of an unfinished house at 3806 Melrose Avenue. His name, Mr. Marsh, is Ross Gilbert. Gilbert? Yes, that's
8: right. What do you know about him? Very little. I only met him once at the Riviera Pacifico. Riviera Pacifico? The hotel at Ensenada in Mexico. Mm. Matter of fact, it was the same night that he met Corey. Which didn't make you very happy, huh? Uh, No, you've got it wrong. Corey and I were already divorced. The three of us meeting was nothing more than an accident. Oh. And when Ross and Corey parlayed that accident into marriage, were you still smiling? Better than that, Mr. Marlowe. When that happened a month ago, I was grinning. You see, until then, I had been paying Corey $1,200 a month alimony for two and a half years.
0: Mm -hmm. And Corey gave all that up for love and Ross Gilbert, huh?
8: Uh, Ross Gilbert isn't exactly a pauper, Mr. Marlowe.
0: No, I guess not. Blackmailing a pauper doesn't add up.
8: Uh, what did you say, Mr. Marlowe?
0: I said putting the bite on somebody who has nothing is like sucking a lollipop with a cellophane on it. You get action but no results, you see? Oh. Now tell me, why does the word blackmail come home to roost, Mr. Marsh? You wouldn't happen to know who the guilty party is, would you?
8: No, Mr. Marlowe. Hmm. And what's more, if I did, I certainly wouldn't keep that sort of thing to myself.
0: Oh, no, I don't think you would. Well, thanks anyway, Mr. Marsh. You've been a big help.
8: I'm glad. And if I can be of any further help, don't hesitate to call on me, Mr. Marlowe. Please. No, I won't, Mr. Marsh. You can depend on it.
0: All the way from Wilshire Boulevard to Mrs. Gilbert's place on Ogden Drive, I kept wondering who wanted how much out of Ross Gilbert and why. About 20 minutes later, when I pulled up in front of the house, I started concentrating on my client, who had to be the woman standing next to a green coupe in the driveway and waiting in double time. Gilbert was long, flowing blonde hair draped over shoulders that at the moment looked like they were carrying the weight of the world. But she was prettier worried than most women who always keep it gay. Mr. Marlowe? Yeah, Mrs. Gilbert? Yes. Your husband shown up yet?
6: No. Marlowe, what do you suppose? Take has it happened?
0: easy. Maybe we'd better have another look at uh, 3806 Melrose Avenue, huh?
6: Whatever you say. Shall I drive?
0: If you've got a license.
6: Yes, Mr. Marlowe. I've got a license.
0: Well, okay, let's go. <laughs> we took off in Corey's Nash. I wasn't sure whether her license was for driving a car or an airplane. And while she kept her 83-and-a-half AAA on the accelerator, she talked about her husband and why she was worried. By the time we were near the place, I knew all about the party in Ensenada, their whirlwind courtship, and what a fine guy Ross Gilbert was when we got out of the car and started over the last hundred yards toward the unfinished house. I'd learned everything Corey knew about the blackmail angle, which wasn't very much.
6: It started last week, Marla, when we got back from our honeymoon. Ross wasn't himself at all. He was worried. He forgot how to laugh. He argued with me over any and everything.
0: Mm. Where does the blackmail come in?
6: I don't know. He wouldn't tell me what was wrong. Then this evening, just before I called you, I overheard him talking on the telephone. That's when I caught the word blackmail and this address.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, maybe Ross will be able to fill in a few of the blanks for us. Oh, he was over here in this room on a pile of lumber when I, I... Plummer must have done a lot more damage than I figured.
6: Ross! Ross! Take it easy.
0: Take it easy, baby.
6: Marlo, what is it? Is he... is he...
0: I'm afraid he is, Corey.
6: That man! That man! He beat him to death!
0: No, Corey, that round hole in Gilbert's chest wasn't made by a fist. Where I stand, it looks like a 32 caliber bullet.
1: just a moment, we will return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, for some new wrinkles in the mystery field, look on the face of Mr. Jack Benny, eminent producer of the mystery comedy The Lucky Stiff, which opened in New York today. Although Mr. Benny's stars are Dorothy L'Amour, Claire Trevor, and Brian Donlevy, Jack's face is covered with new wrinkles, because he couldn't be in New York to sell the tickets himself. He's remaining in Hollywood to appear tomorrow night on CBS on The Jack Benny Show with Mary Livingston, Don Wilson, Dennis Day, Phil Harris, and Rochester. So be sure to listen. And now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Easy Mark.
0: Gilbert's face went sickly white, and her mouth twisted on the brink of hysteria as she stared at the dead man. I turned her away from it and led her to a window. She did the fastest job of pulling herself together I'd ever seen. and I went back to the body. On the way, I noticed a folded scrap of paper on the floor. It was a page torn out of a desk diary, but all that was written on it was the address of the unfinished house we were in. I looked down at what had once been Ross Gilbert's. Set up didn't make any sense. A victim of blackmail had been beaten up by a total stranger and then a little while later murdered. Somebody had killed the goose that was laying the golden eggs and it didn't figure in any direction. Well, I just about decided to go through his pockets when a sound from Corey changed my mind.
6: Marlowe, Marlo, Marlo, come here, quick. What is it, Corey? There's someone out there. I saw a shadow move.
0: Get away from the window.
6: Marlowe, there, running. Why, it's a woman.
0: Yeah, and quite a woman. What do you know?
6: She's crossing the street now. Who is it, Marlowe? Who is she?
0: character as French as Milani's 1890. Only she's more like nitric acid than salad dressing, Corey. Her name is Nanette Lamarck.
6: She's getting in that car. Aren't you going to stop her? No.
0: I've got a line on Miss Lamarck. I can find her.
6: But she was hiding here. She could be the one who shot Ross, couldn't she?
0: Easily. In fact, right now she's the odds-on favorite. But she's also cagey, and we'll have better luck if we get her on home ground where she'll talk. Besides, there's a big chunk of this business that doesn't follow. What do you mean? Well, look, the murder came out in reverse. Ross was paying off. So he should have been the killer instead of the corpse. Which means there's more than blackmail involved.
6: I don't know what you're talking about. All I know is he's dead and and, and that woman killed him.
0: Maybe. Come on, Corey, let's get out of here. Where are we going? Well, first you take me back to my car and then I got a job for you to do.
6: What kind of a job?
0: Well, I found this page ripped out of a desk diary, probably Ross's. I want you to go through all his things and find that diary for me. There might be something else in it that'll give us a connection.
6: All right. Where are you going?
0: i going to pay a call on Nanette. Only this time I'm bringing my own welcome mat. I think I'll need it. <laughs> After Corey dropped me off, I called Lieutenant Ibarra at Homicide, reported the body, and then I got into my own car and drove out to Beverly Hills again, to the Camden Arms Court. Annette's bungalow had lights on. I parked down the street and made tracks back through the landscaping to a side window. Annette was playing pin-up girl on the arm of a divan. And she watched someone pace back and forth across the room. When I got close enough to hear what was being said, that someone turned out to be right, Corey Gilbert's right. first husband, People Emery Marsh.
8: Like chickens with their heads off. So Ross Gilbert was shot to death. But I've got to know the truth about one thing, Miss Lamarck. My entire life's work is at stake. Can't you understand? All no,
7: right, Monsieur Marsh. Do not break out into tears, I will tell you. Plummer is merely a private investigator I hired to, to locate Ross Gilbert for me. Now, are you happy?
8: No. Why did such a person have my telephone number? That's what I want to know. I'll be ruined if I'm involved in this mess. My reputation means everything to my business, and... Well, things aren't going too well just now. If I'm connected with a scandal, I'll be wiped out. Well, stop
7: worrying. I saw you with Ross Gilbert three or four times before he disappeared. So I gave your name to Plummer as a, as a possible lead to Ross, that is all.
8: Why did you want to find Ross Gilbert?
7: That, mon ami, is none of your business. You found out what you wanted, so good night.
8: All right, I'll go. But can I count on you to keep my name out of this?
7: Listen, I am counting on me to keep my own name out of it. And I will be very busy doing that. Good night.
0: I plastered myself up against the side of the house and watched Emery Marsh leave. He looked anything but happy over the result of his interview with Nanette, but... I figured I had the benefit of experience to work with and less to lose than he had. So I waited until he was out of sight, and then I stepped up to the door, braced myself, and tried my luck.
7: You again!
0: Yeah, and I want to talk to you! Get
7: your foot out of my door! Oh, get out of here! Get out!
0: Not until we've had a nice, quiet chat, Nanette, and I think we'll take up where Emery Marsh left off. What?
7: Look. Just who exactly are you, Marlowe?
0: Your boy Plummer and I are distant fraternity brothers, but there the similarity ends.
7: Just another chief private detective. Oh!
0: Okay, baby, if that tough stuff's the only language you understand, we'll talk that.
7: Oh, stop it! Leave me alone! Now, get over there! Sit down! Oh. oh, you you ape!
0: I'd be nice to me if I were you, Nanette, because I just love to see a rope around that lovely neck of yours, and what's more, I can almost put one there. You're in a mess right up to your accent. So start making answers beautiful and keep them straight. First, why did you put Plummer on Ross Gilbert's trail?
7: Because he double-crossed me, that is why.
0: Double-crossed you how? He
7: ran away from me. He was mine, all bought and paid for, you understand? Not exactly. When I met him, he was flat broke. I bought him every decent stitch of clothes that he had. Gave him everything he needed to be a gentleman... because we were going to be married... And then he ran out on me and took everything with him that he could lay his hands on. Go on. Nobody does that to Nanette Lamarck. Nobody. So
0: you hired that licensed thug Plumber to find him and beat him half to death, right? Exactly. Well, go ahead, baby. The story doesn't end there. Tell me the rest, the good part. About how you waited until Plummer got through with him, and then you went down to that unfinished blueprint out of House and Gardens and killed him.
7: No. No, that is not true. I, I did not do that. Why, I, I, I c- could not.
0: That's no bigger lie than the rest of it. Where's that pearl handle 32 of yours now? And don't reach for it. Just tell me.
7: What do you want with it? I want
0: to see if it's been fired. Now, where is it? Call it, Jack. Oh, fine.
7: Plummer.
1: Miss Lamarck might not like for you to see her gun.
7: Oh, I thought you would never get here.
1: Who's this character, Miss Lamarck?
7: Another private detective. Marlow by name.
1: No kidding. Well, we got a lot in common, haven't we, Jack?
0: Yes, yes. We've each got two arms and two legs. And the name is Phil.
1: Oh, that's the way it is, huh? Well, listen, Jack. You got no business here in the first place. For two cents, I'll chop you down.
0: You're even cheaper than I figured. Why, and you know. you can big... put away that big, nasty gun, too, because I got you cold. That envelope you stuck in Nanette's mailbox tonight had a slip of paper inside from one of your old clients. Huh?
1: Well, what, are you, what are you talking about?
0: Can't you guess? Hey, you want to see it?
1: Well, yeah, yeah. Let's have a look at that. Okay. Take a good look. Oh, come Ow!
0: on, drop the gun, plumber. Come on, drop it. My arm! All right, now, fold up. <laughs> There's your bargain basement detective, Nanette. You didn't get your money's worth, did you? Now, shall we take a look at that pearl-handled gun of yours?
7: It is over there in my bag.
0: Thanks. Mmm. Clips full and that smell sure isn't gunpowder.
7: Of course not. I did not kill Ross. Why, I was not even inside of that building where he was.
0: Yeah, I know, but you... Wait a minute. Say that again.
7: I said I was never inside that unfinished house where he was found... When I drove up, you were already there, so I left.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. And Plummer's gun is... Uh-huh, fully loaded. Hasn't been fired either. Baby, you've just given me a great idea.
7: An idea? But I do not understand. Yeah, never
0: mind, I'll explain it to you later. And incidentally, you better be around. Right now, I've got to find out one more thing, and then maybe I'll pop this whole shebang wide open. <laughs> Marlowe. Good evening, Mr. Marsh. Lucky to find you're still working, huh?
8: Late hours are a habit with me these days. Come in. Thanks.
0: Uh, Mr. Marsh, I've come back for that help you offered me earlier this evening. I see. Well, the offer's still good. Fine. I think your ex-wife, Corey is lying to me. She claims you didn't know Ross Gilbert, that you only met him once at that party in Ensenada, but you did know him, didn't you?
8: Why, yes. As a matter of fact, I did get acquainted with Ross slightly. We had dinner together a few times. Uh
0: huh. And you really did favor his marriage to Corey because it freed you automatically from that alimony load you were carrying.
8: That's correct, Marlowe, but I don't And it's also
0: correct, isn't it, that you couldn't afford to go to court to have your alimony reduced because that would let your snobbish clientele know you were going on the rocks.
8: Yes, that's also true.
0: And maybe it's true that you actually engineered the marriage and it backfired on you.
8: Very smart, Mr. Marlowe. Just keep your hands at your side. This might go off.
0: You, yes. Well, I expected a reaction, but not quite so soon.
8: Too bad. I'll trouble you for your gun, now that you've got it all figured out. Yes, Marlowe, I engineered that marriage. Corey was attracted to Gilbert, but he was broke. I knew that would scare Corey off if she found out.
0: So you and Corey made a deal, particularly with Ross... He wanted to marry Corey. You supplied the cash for his courtship, right?
8: Yes. Only he wouldn't stop there. He kept demanding more.
0: Sure, that figured from the start. Ross wasn't being blackmailed. He was the blackmailer himself, and that made you worse off than before, so you killed him.
8: You're so right, Mr. Marlowe. And remember, the price for two murders is the same as for one. So you've really left me no alternative.
6: I'll give you an alternative, Emery. (gasps) Corey... One thing you didn't count on. I really loved Ross Gilbert.
0: Well, I guess that winds it up, Corey. Emory's in the hospital, and Nanette and Plummer are both in the clink.
6: Too bad I only hit Emery in the hand. I never could trust my aim. It's always been bad in a lot of ways.
0: It was good enough tonight, baby. Lucky for me you showed up when you did. Say, what made you come to Marsha's place, anyway?
6: Well, that page from the desk diary paid off, Marlowe. Only we made a mistake. No? It didn't come from Ross's diary. It came from Emery's. I finally remembered his handwriting. Mm-hmm. Now, you tell me something, Marlow. Yeah. How did you know Emery was guilty?
0: Oh, well, he made the oldest slip in the book. When he was talking to Nanette, I overheard him say that Ross had been shot. Oh. Emery had no way of knowing that Gilbert was dead or how he'd been killed unless Nanette told him. And for a while, I thought she had, but then I found out that she couldn't have because she'd never been inside the house where we found Ross.
6: So it had to be Emery. Sure. I see. Well, Marlowe, uh, what does a gal say at the end of a night like this? Thanks or something?
0: Just thanks will be enough. Hmm. i got to do my income tax. Can I give you a lift? No.
6: No, I'll walk a while. I've got some thinking to do about marksmanship. Call me sometime later on, will you? Just to see if I'm shooting in the right direction.
0: You can count on it, Corey.
6: Thanks. Good night, Phil.
0: I watched her for a moment as she walked down the street all by herself, deep in her own thoughts, and it looked to me like she was playing it strictly square. I almost wanted to follow her. (laughs) The first time in a long time, I felt like I wanted to get to know a client better. But March 15th can slip up awfully fast, and that long form 1040 was still unfinished and waiting for me in my office. So I decided to go back and work on my income tax and play it strictly square, too. After all, that's really the easiest way in the long run. Yeah, I keep telling myself. <laughs>
1: Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore and is produced by Norman MacDonald. The script by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt was directed by Ralph Rose. Featured in the cast were Sylvia Sims, Lorette Philbrandt, Ken Harvey and Paul Duboff. The special music was by Richard O'Runt. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says...
0: There was a man with a bad heart, a telephone number scribbled on a cash register receipt, and a corpse on the other side of town. But I couldn't see the connection between them until I realized they were all tied together by the same long rope worth $30,000.
1: Next Wednesday evening, February 2nd, CBS will bring you a moving, powerful drama of a reporter who took an assignment he eagerly sought, only to find it came too close to home. Its title is Mind in the Shadow, its star is Eddie Albert, and its story tells how the reporter set out to reveal the shocking facts about our mental hospitals and then learned that his lovely young wife might have to enter one. Based on actual documentary evidence of conditions existing today, you'll find Mind in the Shadow, a revealing story of something which could happen to you. Hear Mind in the Shadow, starring Eddie Albert, next Wednesday evening, over most of these same CBS network stations. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, Jack Benny's new address, Sunday night on CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.